0: The ability to manage during a crisis is fundamental to effective leadership. As Chief of Staff to California Governor Gavin Newsom, Anne O'Leary finds herself leading a statewide team as they engage in a battle to control the deadly spread of coronavirus. Anne recounts the decision-making process that led Governor Newsom to make California the first state in the country to order a shutdown. Anne also gives us real-time analysis as California sees a new wave of coronavirus cases. Anne O'Leary offers wisdom and insight from her years working in the Clinton White House, time as legislative director to Senator Hillary Clinton, and co-executive director of Hillary Clinton's 2016 Transition Project. Throughout the conversation, Anne shares the traits, habits, and practices employed by leaders during times of crisis. Enjoy this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the practice of law without it killing us.
1: You're listening to Iron Advocate, the podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney, sage, visionary, warrior, unfiltered, no holds barred, iron advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Riebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others begins with being the best advocate for yourself.
2: And what has it been like to be part of the team that decided to shut down the entire state of California?
3: I think, you know, it's been an extraordinary responsibility. I think every day I wonder if we've done enough, if we have gone far enough. I think at the beginning we did, we were decisive. I think Californians got an A-plus on our stay-at-home order. And the last week I've been unable to sleep because I'm really worried about where we're going next. So I think it's a just incredible responsibility and opportunity to try to do the best by everyone.
0: And how, how was the kind of... Um, reverse course that you had to do this week where you've, you've walked back the opening in California compared to the overall shutdown, the reaction of the people, the people around you?
3: Yeah, let me contrast the two. So I think, you know, when we did the shutdown, we were the first state in the country to do it. And I'll tell you actually a story because I think it's interesting about how it happened in real life, which is we were looking at the data and we were making projections that were really quite dire. In fact, we projected that up to 25 million of the 40 million Californians could get coronavirus. And we were seeing these projections and these models and we were in some sense becoming numb to them a little bit. And so we actually wrote a letter, the governor wrote a letter to President Trump requesting additional federal assets, knowing what we thought was going to happen in California, uh, asking for the um, USS Mercy, which is a naval medical ship to come to Los Angeles. And we put in that letter information about what we were seeing. I, I approved that letter going out without realizing that we hadn't actually said that to the public yet. And so it was shocking. And that shock actually shocked us into action uh, to probably even act more quickly to say we need to not be numb to these facts and we need to work really, really uh, closely. Uh, So we um, have done that and we immediately um, decided to shut down California and do this at home order. You know, we're in some senses a parallel here, which is we're seeing and looking at the data every day, looking at both the uh, just really big increase in. Uh, hospitalization rates, ICUs, and also the number of cases. So we kind of have, have to act really decisively and quickly. And so one, time, one thing that's different this time is we're being very concerned about everything that we're coming in. Not that we weren't the first time, but I think we're just being really intentional about releasing the data and then acting on it uh, really quickly. So this weekend, we closed down bars in all the counties that are continuing to have problems. We sent a strike team. Uh, we've been sending teams down to Imperial County border between california and mexico uh to do even more so we're really trying to be as decisive as possible
2: so and how has the 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 process of crisis management and and what i hear you talking about here is just a steady string of of crisis management how was the process of crisis management during covid with you as the chief of staff or the governor of california how has that been similar and different from the crises you've either been a part of when you worked in the uh the Bill Clinton White House, and then when you work for Hillary Clinton, both in terms of her legislative director and also in her campaign. What has been similar? What's been different?
3: You know, I think that one of the things that feels different this time, but I've been reflecting on it and I'll say a little bit more, but it feels different of just how much lives are on the line you know, I, at 11 p.m. each night, I get a data um, information share from our California Department of Public Health showing me over, you know, in the past day, what percentage of people have um, increased in terms of the number of cases, how many more people have died, how many more people are in the hospital, in the ICU. So every single day, you're reminded of how consequential the decisions are that you're making in terms of the life and death of people in California. So I think that has put, um, you know, just a a sense of urgency and a finer point on the public decisions that one makes you know, I was reflecting just in thinking about this podcast on the twenty sixteen election and just how hard that was when we lost the twenty sixteen election. And in some sense, I, I think my, my initial gut reaction was, well, when you're in a campaign, that's not life or death. But the fact of the matter is that it turns out it, it was life or death, which is that we are, you know, right now um, dealing with the fact that we have no national leadership um helping guide this. We have in fact a disinformation campaign that is being spread by the White House. And so I think that while it wasn't as clear to me um, in terms of the loss of the 2016 campaign, I think there is uh, similarities. But I think today the difference is just how visceral that is and how directly tied it feels to the the decisions we're making.
0: And having spent so much time around President Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, Governor Newsom, And in times of crisis, what what are the hallmarks of a great leader and their personal practices during times of crisis?
3: Yeah, so I think that one of the things that I would say three things, one is just um, empathy, really making really understanding deeply what the people that you're elected to serve are going through. Um, and understanding that and feeling it, I think, makes a big difference. And then the other thing that I would say that all three of the people have in common um, is a just real sense of intellectual curiosity, never feeling like you have enough information and always wanting more, which is a really positive thing, making sure that you're learning what's happening around the globe. You're relying on experts. You're on your own, not just looking at your briefing book, but consuming every piece of news you possibly can so you can learn better, know more, ask more ask better questions. And I think all three of the people that I've worked for have done that. And I think it's really critical. And then I do think the third thing is really like, how do you take care of yourself in this? And that's something that I've struggled with myself. I know Governor Newsom struggles with, I know Hillary did. And it really is about the basics we know about human life, which is how do you actually take deep breaths? How do you get a chance to sleep in the, at night? How do you make sure that you're eating well and exercising? And I think um, that is a struggle. And I think for me personally, I probably, um, because of my own life journey over the last several years, I really have doubled down on that during this time of just how critical it is to take care of myself so I can be a better leader. And I think I've, you know, certainly learned that lesson over some time.
2: And tell us how you do that because that's uh, one of the foundational pieces of Iron Advocate is helping helping folks see how somebody with the kind of greatness that you have actually does it on a day-to-day without going through every bit of your schedule. Tell folks what you're doing right now to take care of yourself.
3: Well, you know, I've been a runner for most of my life, but last year I had an an illness and couldn't really run very much. And so had just started back up my running in January, just decided it's New Year's resolution to start running again. And uh, when the crisis first really hit home in mid-March, I stopped running for a few weeks. And then I just realized that Um, In some sense, running had to be as important to me as sleeping and brushing my teeth and eating well. And so I decided that I needed to run every morning. And so I've been running, you know, I get up, I usually I sleep between midnight and six, I get up at six, I check a few texts and send a few texts. And then I get on the road and I run five miles, usually listen to a podcast and um, listen to the news. Um, And it really is the only time of day that I'm by myself, really. And that I'm really grounded and really just trying to make sure that I'm set centered. And then um, I just also have been like very strictly trying to eat well. And, um, and it's not perfect in terms of my six hours of sleep, but I do try to protect my midnight to 6am sleep habits. And I think between those three things, that's really helped. And then the final thing I would say is that you know, I do think it's really critical to know that you can't keep in touch with all of your friends, but to have one or two people in your life who you can actually have a conversation with every day and have a walk with or a talk with, it makes a huge, huge difference. And so I've tried to, you know, pick out one or two friends who can really help me through this. And that's been extraordinary as well.
0: And what about during the day. So, so you have your kind of pre-game regime in the morning when things go sideways uh, and you feel yourself start to spin. Do you have practices that, that you utilize uh, in moments like that to center yourself?
3: You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about it because it was happening today. We have this really horrible situation at San Quentin, our, one of our California state prisons in which we have a really high uh, incidents of uh, COVID-positive inmates, and it's really been weighing on me, and I've been dealing with calls all morning on it. I was driving from the Office of Emergency Services back to the Capitol, and I was thinking about this mantra that two of my colleagues, both of whom happen to be Puerto Rican, told me that their grandparents taught them, which is that you have to slow down in order to speed up. And part of what I try to remind myself, I, I stopped the car, and I remembered I needed to like slowly take out my earbuds, AirPods, put them in the case, don't forget them, take a deep breath, continue on. And so I actually have the mantra where I always remind myself, slow down to speed up, like don't rush through this, take a deep breath, be mindful about what your movements. And so I think that's one of the things I've been trying to do that two of my colleagues said to me at the very early stages of this crisis.
2: And I want to go back to something you said about, um, the three leaders you work with, uh, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and, and Gavin Newsom, and the qualities they have What do you think the public right now does not really understand that it needs to understand about COVID or anything else?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is I think that there is still this idea that came out very early from the White House and they're, they're, you know, reintroducing it, which is that, you know, this is really just the flu. Don't worry about it. Um, So that one I think is really important. And the other one is just this, like, you know, your personal freedom should be above everything else, meaning you shouldn't wear masks. Um, And so I think those are really troubling. So if we actually, I'll just give you an example, which is we had the data come in last week And it showed that there was a really big increase in young people, 18 to 34 year olds who were getting COVID positive tests in California, you know, we call them the young invincibles uh, because oftentimes people don't believe that they'll get sick, and even if they do, it won't be that bad. And the fact of the matter is, they're right. Oftentimes, young people don't get as sick. But what we do know is that there is a percentage of young people who get sick and die. But more importantly, in or equally importantly, they also we also know that those are you know great transmitters, and so their parents, their grandparents are getting quite ill because of their actions. And so I think trying to really get young people to take responsibility uh, for themselves and their family and their community is really, really critical. And then I think this notion that, you know, we are, we you know, we actually, Californians made me so proud in terms of the first three months of just how much all of us, you know, every single bit of California was actually taking the stay at home order really seriously in this disinformation campaign that has been started um, around the country about not wearing masks and just going ahead and go out and do these large gatherings uh, really has caused us to go backwards. And so I think part of it is how do we get out there with the science, which we're seeing from around the globe, which is that face coverings make a tremendous difference. So, and that's what we're trying, actually going to launch a public health campaign later this week before July 4th to really try to get those messages back out there and fight the disinformation campaign.
0: And you're, you know, you're running uh, what is I think the fifth largest economy in the world in in the state of California. How do do you uh and the leaders around you communicate with with your troops from top to bottom uh and keep everybody calm on message and and kind of maintain morale throughout throughout the state?
3: Yeah, so I'd say two things. One is, you know, making sure that we, um, from a substantive information sharing point, have real clear lines of how we communicate with one another, which I think then helps people calm down. So, you know, we actually have a really sophisticated Office of Emergency Services uh, run by a great guy named Mark Gillarducci, who comes from a really long background of running emergencies um, here in California and nationally. And so we actually, every morning, have a what we call a unified coordinating group phone call that involves all of our cabinet secretaries and senior leaders throughout the entire uh, state of California government in which we both provide information about what our, um, what our actions of the day are, and then we receive information about how people have made progress on key indicators of movement, and then we're able to get highlights of where there may be problem spots. So I think just making sure you have a real structure of information sharing does actually help to calm people down. But in addition to that, I also think particularly as a that my level of leadership of being able to do the, um, you know, touches, one-off touches to senior leaders to make sure they're doing okay, um, Making sure that our governor's office team, we've got about 150 people who work just for the governor's office, and that's the team that I directly lead, um, that they, you know, I'm doing regular, both all check in staff check-ins with them, and then reminding my senior executive team to both check in with their team um, and also just kind of have uh, some buddy systems, particularly because we're working at home. So I think it takes um, intentionality of communication always, but particularly in this, uh, this particular crisis.
2: So Anne, I want to just find a different theme about this crisis, and, and that's one of resilience. You've been with, you're with Hillary Clinton through many difficult times, including the impeachment process, her time as a senator, uh, and the campaign when Trump used the email issues to, to get people to fill arenas and chant, lock her up. It all culminated with Hillary winning the popular vote by millions. Can you articulate what underlies Hillary Clinton's resilience?
3: You know, I think she's an incredibly centered person. Um, One of the things that she's shy to talk about, and I think most many people don't know, is she's also a very deeply religious person. Um, And she is in public service. She's been in public service since she was a teenager, kind of for all the right reasons. And so one of the things that I most respect about her is just how much she is focused on helping people. So I'll tell you a story that, um, you know, is not public, but when she lost the 2016 election, I was actually running one of the people running her presidential transition to prepare for her becoming president, picking the cabinet, looking at what she was going to do in the first days after she was elected. And one of the first things that we had said, um, We'd agreed with her that she would do is she would actually go and give a speech to the Children's Defense Fund, which is an organization that she'd sat on the board. It's one of the great civil rights children's organizations run by a woman named Marion Wright Adelman. And um, so when she lost, um, I, I didn't speak to her that day. But a few days later, I'd gone back to California and I got a phone call from her. And she said, Ann, I wanna, I wanna give that speech. And I said, Are you sure? You know, that's gonna be really hard for you. And she said, No, I promised. And I'm not the I'm not the president-elect, but I wanna give the speech. And I'd like you to fly back to DC and come with me. So I flew back to DC and was really emotionally hard and you know, saw her. And you know, it was the first time I'd seen her one-on-one since she'd lost. And she, you know, looked at me and she's, she actually got tears in her eyes. And she was talking about the fact that she made all these promises to children who were uh, the children of uh, immigrants uh, who were undocumented in our country, who were so scared. And she was so worried about them. And that's the thing she was worried most about. It wasn't about, you know, the fact that she personally wasn't president or any, you know, kind of prestige that goes with it. It was about the fact that, you know, how, how could she break this promise to all these young people? And I think that that spirit of wanting to help and to be so driven by that is really the thing that keeps her going every day and I think she's you know found other ways to do it but I think it really is um incredible core centeredness of her mission of her life
0: what would you say to lawyers out there young and and not so young that they can and should do to stay in touch with with that kind of um, internal compass so that the law doesn't um, doesn't doesn't grind them down the way it can?
3: You know, I mean, I think I've thought a lot about this over the last several years with my own ups and downs. And I think that one of the things that I've come to realize is that the thing that motivated you as a child, as a teenager, as a young person in your 20s, sometimes you lose that and you get really busy with work and with, especially as lawyers. I mean, we're working 24-7 oftentimes and especially in a job like this or even a partner in a law firm, you've got a big case and you're not looking up from the paper. And what I would say is that I think whatever you know, whatever got you going in the first instance and got you up and got you excited and um, that, that you should just touch base with yourself and remind yourself. So for me, really the two things are you know, I would say three things, reading, running, and hiking. And those are the moments in which I can self-reflect and think about how I'm doing. And, you know, especially with reading, you get new ideas, new thoughts. And I think, um, whatever is your, whatever is your jam, I think you have to remember that no matter how busy you are, you have to take the time to do those things so that you can be self-reflective in the moment. And you also, I mean, it helps you do your job better and be a better person. And I think sometimes we just forget to take care of the, of our you know, bodies and our souls during this. And I think that's just something that I've been really trying to be mindful about.
2: So, Anne, speaking of, of, you know, your career, and you said you've had your ups and downs and and you've had an incredible career. um, And it hasn't, and your life has not been out without challenges that you just referred to. But you've continued a a process of grounding yourself and, and a commitment to your own, you know, integrity and impeccability throughout. But if we just ask you to step back and think about a vision of your life, given all the things you've been involved in, Where are you right now?
3: Oh, God, Jeff, that's a hard question. Gosh darn you. (laughs) No, Um, it's a... So let's about. see. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if I think about what the next few years, you know, I've, I've got a 13 year old daughter and a 10 year old son. And um, I talk to them a lot about this, which is, you know, they keep asking me, mommy, when this is going to be, what is this going to be over? And, and I'm probably more honest with them than, than everybody else. Cause I have no more. And I said, you know, it's going to be a few years. There are going to probably be two more years of uh, ins and outs of uh, dealing with this issue. And so I think as I look forward, I think part of it is like you know, feeling like I did right. I mean, it's probably everybody's deathbed bed wish is that you do right by your job and by your kids. And it's really hard. And I think, um, you know, in the end of the day, I want to make sure that I feel good about the decisions I made and that I was, you know, I, and that I don't beat myself up too much, but that I'm really trying to wake up every day and ask the questions to drive what's happening in California. I mean, I worry a lot that two years from now, Um, you know, how many people died? What happened? What did that mean? Did I do everything that I could have possibly done? And did I also take time for my children and be present in their lives? And so, you know, I think if I look forward, it's really, you know, not necessarily the next job. I often joke that I, you know, want a job being like a barista or something so I can just go home at night and not think about anything else. But um, I think what I really want to do is just make sure that I, you know, kind of act with intentionality in my life so that I can do the next thing right. And part of that is just... Just you know, really trying to be healthy. So I don't have a vision of where I'm going to land, but I do have a vision of just trying to be make sure that that integrity that I have tried to maintain my whole life that it you know gets maintained during the hardest of times.
0: So Anne, I want to ask it the opposite way, which is knowing everything you've learned along the way and all these incredibly cool jobs managing you know crisis and complex situations. Today, with everything you've learned, what would be the one or two things you would tell that young Anne O'Leary at her first big job that you wish she had known?
3: Oh, that's good. Okay. So, I mean, I think that, you know, part of it is if you're in politics long enough, there really are a couple of different people are in law. I think it's the same. It's like, you know, it's the people who are in it for the reasons because they want to get, you know, famous or they want to, you know, have a lot of power or they want to do this or that. Of course, everybody who does these jobs, you know, there's certain things you enjoy about getting, um, you know, accolades or whatever. But I think that, you know, for me, it really is like, how much good can you do uh, during this? So I think, you know, one of one of it is probably not to worry so much about, I remember, and I think about this with young people on my team, like, don't worry so much about what room you're being invited to be in, like, keep your nose to the grindstone and keep at it, which I, I think I've done. But I think, you know, I think I oftentimes will compare myself to somebody else in politics who may be more famous or more doing, you know, different things. And I think part of it is just, you know, try to continue to just remember what contributions you're making. Don't have so much self-doubt. You know, make sure that you just keep at it. So I think probably the self-doubt thing is like, you know, anybody, I grew up in a, you know, a family that was involved in politics, but we certainly, you know, were not wealthy and had a lot of, um, wonderful Irish American dysfunction, I shall say. And so I think, um, Part of it is like oftentimes like the, you know, imposter syndrome of feeling like you don't belong um, is hard. So I think part of it is when you're young is just remember like, okay, well, now you've got to a place where you do have power. Like you can, you can sit and use that power in really good ways and don't keep doubting yourself is what I would say.
2: Let me ask you a question about that, Anne, because you're, you're touching on something that I have found to be um, very pervasive among very successful folks which is they do oftentimes have a lot of self self-doubt and it's very counterintuitive and it doesn't make sense to somebody on the outside when they see the position and success they've had how have you dealt with your own self-doubt what's been a if you had a to kind of come back to what bob has said that the younger you and who had these self-doubts how would you talk to that younger you just about self-doubt
3: I mean, I think that the thing that I feel like one of the things I've been most successful in my life at is actually having really deep and meaningful friendships that have really carried me through. Um, And so I think that, you know, I I mean, I'll give a specific example is that um, during this crisis, as I said, you can't be in touch with everybody, but you pick a few people. And one of the group, one of the the people I've been in touch with is a group of women who I went to college with at Mount Holyoke. There are four of them. They're really diverse group of women. um, And so one of them is African-American woman, my college roommate who's from Texas and lives in Oslo, Norway. Um, And so because of the time change, we get up, I get up at seven in the morning every Saturday And I talked to her and two women in in the East Coast and me. And, um, you know, having somebody who can, you know, who knows your younger self and who can say like, okay, remember this and tie it together and go forward with you. Um, You know, I think having, you know, some people get in a life partner, some people get it. I personally have gotten it through these deep friendships that I have. And I think Um, you know, just whatever it might be, having the ability to have somebody help you check yourself when you have self-doubt really has helped me do better to stop self-second guessing.
0: And um, we're going to return you to the people of California. Thanks so much for doing this.
3: Thank you so much. It was terrific to talk to both of you.
0: And thank you.
3: Thank you for joining us.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness. Breathe in, breathe out, and we'll see you next time.